0: Um, I'm just going to introduce myself before before going ahead. I'm presbyter Elizabeth Turvo. I'm a presbyter, which means I'm the wife of a Greek Orthodox priest. And we live in Bellingham, and our church is St. Sophia. Um, I'm going to talk to you about The Plain Princess, which is by Phyllis McGinley. Um, I read her story, and it's actually not a novel, but a short story, which was written in 1945. And I read it when I was a little girl in this book. Sweet little book, huh? I think this was my mom's. This is probably published in the 1950s, has a sort of 1950s look to it, doesn't it? And this story is very much a story of its time and in a way to us it might seem kind of dated but I'm I was interested to read it to reread it at this time and see what I thought about it in 21st century America, what does the story have to say to us? Phyllis McGinley was a writer, an American writer, and her name sort of, if you think Phyllis McGinley, it sort of sounds like Phyllis Schlafly, very old fashioned sort of housewife type lady, which is pretty much what she was. Mm -hmm. She wrote light verse and children's stories and children's books. And why did she write light verse is so interesting. I find that as a woman in America, you have several different influences on yourself. And one is you gotta get married, have a household, have some kids. And then the other one is you wanna be like Sylvia Plath. You wanna write out your most horrible internal hates and struggles and you got these two things sort of warring in your mind and which are you going to be so phyllis schlafly sorry phyllis mcginley she started off writing confessional poetry and she was writing for the new yorker at that time and the editor of the new yorker it was catherine white at that time she said all these women poets write the same sad song why don't you write light verse she's like what's light verse light verse is could be ironic, could be amusing. Probably rhymes. Probably has a traditional format instead of being free verse. And she thought, well, okay, if that's what people would like, great. So that's what she wrote. And she wrote a lot for the New Yorker. And even a few weeks ago, when the New Yorker was doing a retrospective, they published one of her poems today. And she's been dead—I don't know, 40, 50 years. So. Even though her poetry and her stories might seem dated to us, there's still some kind of appeal nowadays. She also wrote essays, magazine articles, and she was a great Catholic writer. Now, I'm an Orthodox person, but I was brought up Catholic and a very great appreciation for a Catholic writer who's putting her faith into her work. It's a really beautiful thing. Okay, so, there we go. This is the book in its original cover. Um, here's little Esmerella. She's the, the princess. She has everything that you could have. Now in this world of the fairy tale, her destiny is to get married and be a queen. That's just what the world of the fairy tale is like. You can't you're not going to go off and be a nun or a single lady. This is just what you do in this kind of fairy tale. But she is plain poor thing which is kind of a code word for ugly and why is she ugly we'll find out so little prince charles michael comes for her birthday party and he prefers to go and talk with the duck keepers daughter down at the lake instead of being with esmeralda because she is so plain she's very selfish Here she is at a birthday party. She's banging her spoon like, I want more cake. And everybody else is like, whoa. (laughs) She has everything you could have. She has servants to do everything for her, even one servant whose job it is just to push her on the swing. That's his only job. Um, She has everything you could have. Millions of dresses. When she needs braces, they're made out of gold. but she is just this poor little ugly thing that nobody likes and it's the problem that doesn't seem to have any solution so here are her poor parents so sad because she is so plain and what are they going to do with their daughter they have this kind of alienation from her it's almost like where did we get this daughter she's not like us so the king says let's see if we can figure this out he gets the palace doctors they can't solve the problem nobody can solve the problem so, the king makes a, um, an advertisement. And I'm gonna read you the advertisement because I think it's kind of cute. Reward. Anyone capable of transforming a plain young lady into a beautiful young lady will be given a purse of gold. And these are all um, capital words with capital letters. A purse of gold. Results must be guaranteed. Those failing will lose their heads. This wasn't very tactful advertisement, it must be confessed, but the king had thought it up himself without consulting his Royal Board of Public Relations. So you see this fairy tale is kind of a mix of some kind of medieval kingdom and modern, like he should have gone an advertising agency. So a lady comes along named Dame Goodwit. She is a housewife and she has brought up five daughters and they are all very well behaved and pretty and nice and everybody likes them. And the king says, well, can you do miracles? And she says, well, I've brought up five kids under your tax system, so I think that's pretty much a miracle. (laughs) He's like, okay, you go ahead and try. And he says, but if you fail, you're going to lose your head. And she says, your majesty, women in our family very rarely lose their heads. (laughs) So she has four little Esmeralda has to leave all of her stuff. The only thing she's allowed to bring with her is a little pearl locket that her godmother gave her. She has to go and live with Dame Goodwit's family out in the countryside in a little shabby house with five sisters and she has to do housework. She gets to play outside. Here she is learning how to climb a tree with the other girls. She has to learn how to cook She has to learn how to bake. And the first thing she does when she gets to the house is she throws herself on the floor and has a huge temper tantrum. And they just walk around her and just go on getting dinner ready. And when she's ready, she's allowed to have some soup. She goes to bed. Nobody like turns down the covers for her, helps her get changed. She has to do everything herself. And she's really mad and she hates this. But as time passes and she learns to do things and she gets used to living in a little shabby house with five other sisters, she undergoes three transformations. All right. The problem with her had been, she had three things about her that made her plain. One was that her nose was turned up. And those of us with little noses who turn up might find this kind of offensive, but in any case, in this universe, noses turning up are bad. And this is because she always looked down her nose at everybody, she's like sneering at the world. The next thing that was wrong with her is that her mouth went down, because she was never smiling, she was always sulky. The next thing was that her eyes had no glow and sparkle. That's why she was plain, because she thought that she was superior and vain she was superior vain she didn't care about anybody but herself so the five daughters are named Annabelle Christabel Delcibel Floribel and the littlest one is echo so four bells and an echo So, poor little Esmeraldas they're in exile with a shabby family and a shabby house um, the dame Goodwood says to her, you're not really stupid. You'll learn to do all these things. She's like, I'm not stupid I just don't want to cook and clean and do all that stuff But she has to learn to do it. Now the first transformation that happens to her is Floribel makes some gingerbread and Esmeralda says I wish I were as clever as you and at this moment a bird sings a rainbow appears and Esmeralda's nose turns down. <laughs> Esmeralda says it's magic Dame Goodwood says, no, you just found out that other people can be just as clever as you. Here's a picture of the little miracle. Here she is. Second miracle. She cooks muffins for the family. At that moment, a rose blooms, a cricket chirps, and her mouth turns up. Esmeralda, it's magic. Dame Goodwood, no, now you've learned that you can be proud of the work of your own hands third transformation. It's little Echo's birthday, and she's like like cute little tiny girl. And Esmeralda has no present to give her, because she left all her riches up at the palace. So she's very upset, and then she finally realizes that she will give the little girl her only treasure, her little pearl locket. At that moment, there's a gleam of light, a bell peals, and whoa, her eyes are glowing. Esmeralda, it's magic! Jane Goodwood, no, it's the first time you ever did an unselfish thing. No wonder eyes are sparkling. And when the king and queen come to get her, what do they say? Wow, this is a great daughter. We've got a beautiful princess now. But what they say is, now she looks like us. Her mouth is like mine, the king says. The nose is like her mother's. and She has splendid glowing eyes. So her transformation made her look actually more like the person she was biologically in the first place. Now, Dame Goodwood, of course, refuses the purse of gold. Um, Esmeralda goes home, she's restored to her castle, and she's restored to the castle, and she insists that Dame Goodwood and her daughters come and live in the castle complex with them. And of course, now, Prince Charles Michael likes her very much, and everyone lives happily ever after or, McGinley says, at least as happily as it is possible in this mortal world. So here we see common fairy tale tropes are inverted. You've got a princess in distress, but she's not rescued by the prince. He doesn't help her at all. In fact, it's an older lady, like a fairy godmother or like a good witch, but not magical, just good common sense. Now we also have common Christian tropes. Esmeralda starts out as if in Eden, up here. But due to her selfishness and not appreciating what she has, she falls down into the ordinary world. She's an exile, she has to work. But she's redeemed, she changes, and then in the end she's restored again to the castle with the greater community, just like we're going from Eden, falling into the world, being restored to the heavenly city, which has tons of other fellow citizens with Christ. Also, we see Esmeralda going from isolation to community. And I'm remembering uh, one theologian I like very much, John Zizulis, who talks about um, being and communion. And often we think about the two binary nature of reality, which is that you've got being, and you've got non-being. What he says is you have non-being, fine, but opposite to that is community, like you cannot exist unless you're in community, and we get the theology of the Trinity. So Esmeralda, she learns to be in community. She becomes truly human, truly who she is supposed to be. She learns from being with the other girls, from being with them, from eating and drinking together, working together. Now we're not just talking about blood community. Now McGinley, you might think that she is idealizing this family, this kind of late 1940s, 1950s family where there's, they live in the, people live in the suburbs, they have a certain number of kids, they have a garage and a house and a car and a dog and everything is just peachy. But the thing is, the reason she came to this conclusion that family life is so important is that she herself had a very difficult family life. Her, um, her father was a land speculator, so he would buy land and sell it, and he always got the worst of the deal, and so they were always running away, the family was. And then he died when she was quite young. So from this destructive childhood experience, and also through passing through World War II, she comes, and she actually married at age 31, which is in the 40s, is kind of a late time to marry. I mean, nowadays, 31 is young. Um, but in those days, she was like, verging on being an old lady. So she married at 31, had a couple of kids settled down, and for her, this is like coming home. This is like being in the Shire. Even if the inhabitants are too stupid and dull for words and would do well having an invasion of dragons, still, that's home, and that's where you can find community. You can move towards uh, a godly life, or towards theosis, if you want to use the orthodox term, by being together with other people. All right. Okay, and salvation in communities, because we consider other people better than ourselves. And family life, of course, is not always the easiest. As I was preparing this talk, my family was getting into kind of a little tiff, and there was some raised voices going on. And I was like, be quiet so I can write about how wonderful the family life is. (laughs) So, and I think they're probably... You know, if you're together with other people, whether it's nuclear family, extended family, or whether it's coworkers or customers or whoever it is, you're gonna have a chance to get into situations where you're gonna have to say these magical words, I'm sorry, which is maybe the greatest miracle of all. So for McGinley, the the community, the family, the community is not just a place of um, considering other people better than yourselves, recognizing their talents, but also the place where you find salvation in ordinary daily tasks. Sometimes there's a fashion in America where we kind of look down on housework and we say, oh, that's just a housewife. There's a very sweet little book called The Quotidian Mysteries, which is about the everyday life and salvation. And one of the things that lady noticed was that when she was in liturgy, she was sitting at church or standing, whatever it is. And at the end of the service, she sees the priest he's washing the cup he's washing the plate he's folding up everything nicely and putting it away she's like that priest is doing housework housework is holy okay. so it's a way housework or any task that we've got to do however menial is a way of interacting with the created world it brings us salvation if we do it with a good heart okay now esmeralda also is saved by giving and receiving gifts these are like sacraments Now, what are the problems with this story? For us, I mean, in our day and age. Here she is, this is Phyllis McGinley herself. She's on the cover of Time, she's very famous. She's got the blessed home in the back. She seems to me a bit dated, I like her very much, but as a 21st century American lady, I feel like, well, okay, this is lovely, but this isn't exactly, what appeals to most people. Um, She also has a great emphasis on sort of pulling up your socks and being cheerful. And cheerfulness is maybe kind of an underrated virtue, but it does make life go along a little bit easier for everybody. Now, what is she like as a poet? And I'm gonna read you a couple of her poems, because I think they're very charming, and also they tell you something about her. So she uses Like I said, in her verse, she uses humor. She's very topical. She's personal and direct, as if she's talking right to you. All right. And as far as being incarnational, her poetry is concerned with little details, little events of life, like picking somebody up at the train station or errands, meals. Now, this one is called Reflections at Dawn, which sounds a little bit solemn, doesn't it? I wish I owned a Dior dress made to my order out of satin. I wish I weighed a little less and could read Latin. Had perfect pitch or matching pearls, better head for street directions, and seven daughters all with curls and beautiful complexions. I wish I'd get tanned instead of burn, but most on all the stars that glisten, I wish at parties I could learn to sit and listen. I wish I didn't talk so much at parties. It isn't that I want to hear my voice assaulting every ear. Uprising louder, firm and clear above the cocktail clatter. It's simply once the doorbell's rung, I've been like this since I was young, some mad madness overtakes my tongue, and I begin to chatter. Buffet, ball, banquet, quilting bee, wherever conversation's flowing, why must I feel it falls on me to keep things going? The ladies cleverer than I can lull in silence, soft and idle, whatever topic gallows by, I seize it by its bridle. Hold forth on art. I dissect the stage or babble like a kindergartner of politics till I enrage my dinner partner. I wish I didn't talk so much to parties. When hotly boil the arguments, I wish I had the common sense to sit demurely on a fence and let who will be vocal, instead of plunging in the fray with my opinions on display till all the gentlemen edge away to catch an early local, the train. Oh, there's many a likely boon that fate might flip me from her griddle. I wish I could sleep till noon or play the fiddle. Our dance a tour jeté so light I would not shake a single straw down. But when I ponder how last night I laid the law down, more than to have the Midas touch, or critics praise, however hearty, I wish I didn't talk so much. I wish I didn't talk so much. I wish I didn't talk so much when I am at a party. So, kind of light and cute, and something that many of us can uh, sympathize with. I wish not to have talked so much. Now, some of her um, her poetry is like this. It, It sort of turns at the end and you get her ironic look at things. But then she also has poetry where she is idealizing home. And here's maybe her most famous poem. This one is a sonnet, and it's called The 532, which is about picking up her husband at the train station. She said, if tomorrow my world were torn in two, blacked out, dissolved, I think I would remember as if transfixed in unsurrending amber, this hour, best of all the hours I know, when cars come driving to the shabby station, children scuffing the seat and women driving, with ribbons round their hair and trains arriving, and the men getting off with tired but practiced motion. Yes, I would remember my life like this, she said, autumn, the platform red with Virginia creeper, a man coming toward me, smiling, the evening paper under his arm, his hat pushed back on his head, and wood smoke lying like haze on the quiet town, and dinner waiting, and the sun not yet gone down. Okay. So it's probably worth noting that Sylvia Plath felt that McGinley had totally given up and sold out by writing this light verse. Yet, McGinley was extremely popular. Here she is on time. She got the Pulitzer Prize. She got a Laetare medal, which is from Notre Dame. She's in newspapers, magazines, honorary degrees. She wrote this. her essays about finding joy in your life at home. So it's worth it to remember again, she'd just been through the trauma of World War II, difficult childhood, finding a safety and security and spiritual growth in the home. At least if it was boring, at least it was safe. And. As G.K. Chesterton said, the highest adventure of all is being good. Okay. Now, she also wrote a nice book called Saint Watching, which is her encounters um, by, of reading different saints throughout the ages. And it's really very nice. But again, uh, again, it's very much like if you like her, you'll like to know what her take is on all these saints. And otherwise you may feel like you'd like to read those saints for yourself and come to your own conclusions. So here she is being a housewife this is uh she is actually these are little pansies she's showing somebody how to arrange pansies nicely in teacups to make a pretty centerpiece and here she's actually clutching her pearls (laughs) so so we have uh live living happily ever after We have Esmeralda restored to her family and settled with her adoptive family as well. And just like for Tolkien, after all the adventure, the true ending is to be resettled in your beloved home place, whether it's dull like the Shire or whether it's to home over the sea, still you're being with the blessed community. Now there's something wrong with this picture here that I got off the internet. This is actually not her book. This is written by somebody else. But they have taken the, her title. There are a couple different writers who have used this title for their own books. But I think that it, this one shows, and this, this author is very much lesser known, and her, her book, I can't, I can't find this version except on the used book site. But it shows very nicely how you start off here, come down to your place of exile, and then go back up. Okay. Um, let me look and see if there's any little nuggets that I missed, but in the meantime, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, please. What was the name of the book where she wrote about saints through the ages? Saint-watching. Saint-watching. hmm Yeah. And this one, her book of poetry is Times Three. She wrote uh, tons of poems, and they're in tons of different books, but this one is a collection over many decades, so it's called Times Three. Uh, one thing I I really like about the story is that she's mixed together this kind of medieval kingdom princess story together with some ideas from modern America and in this kind of whimsical way which is funny and nice but has a good message in it. What else? something to or it's like something good um especially currently um but she seemed to be truly happy and joyful in that and Mm -hmm. and i've also met other women who are really happy in that because of the community and Mm -hmm. if they have a good home life and a good family life then it is like a joyful good thing um so i like that she is like a famous or popular example Mm -hmm. of that yeah, and I think that this contrast between Phyllis McGinley and Sylvia Plath, there's also a contrast here between uh, Betty Friedan and Irma Bombeck, which maybe some of you who are younger might not know who either of those ladies are. Betty Friedan is the one who wrote um, about how the life of the housewife is so stifling and we're in despair and we've got to get out of it. It's a problem with no solution. And then Irma Bombeck is a lady who wrote light, funny columns in newspapers. And they had a a kind of discussion, which I think sort of illuminates this. Um, Betty Friedan went around the country talking to groups of housewives saying, you're not living up to your God-given potential. You're just being lazy in your tea parties and your cocktail parties and your PTA. It's so boring. You need to go out and get a career. And Irma Bombeck was one of the ladies who heard this talk. And she thought to herself, hmm, I'm missing out on my God-given potential? What is this? Betty Friedan was like, you ladies at home, nobody cares about your children who are muddy, tracking in mud over your new carpet. Who cares about that? Just go find a job. So Irma thought, hmm, what to do? So she went down to the local newspaper and she said, I want you to give me a job writing for the newspaper. And the Um, Editor said, well, what experience do you have? She said, none. He said, well, what do you want to write? And she said, I want to write light funny stories about children who are muddy tracking in mud over my new carpet. And he said, aha, that is what people want to hear. And pretty soon she's printed in 900 newspapers across the country. So for Irma and for Phyllis, they had this beautiful life as housewives, but they also had these big careers where they got to fulfill what they felt was their God-given potential, and they were able to do both. And so I think this is really very nice. And many people will um, admire Betty Friedan and will admire Sylvia Plath. I, pers- I think Sylvia Plath is the best American poet of the 20th century, but I find her very hard to read because her poetry is so full of anger and just evil, really. But I how many people read her, whereas these two other ladies had their light verse out there. People, not just scholars, but ordinary regular people read it and enjoyed it and learned something. So there's kind of a couple different ways of doing, of going about this. Um, and I, I found it quite fun to look at Phyllis McGinley's um, way of looking at things. What other questions or notes do you have for me, please? Why, um, you said you think that Sylvia Plath is one of the best poets I do. Of that century, can you elucidate on why? Okay. She has the most startling images. And she has the. Her images evoke emotion. And though she doesn't use rhyme that much, when she does, it's all the more shocking. Her stuff is shocking. Mm -hmm. And um, if you look at Phyllis's stuff, she uses. Phyllis uses forms like rondo, sonnet, um, and she rhymes. Everything rhymes and has rhythm. Even Phyllis will take words and she'll modify the words so that it fits, like, instead of saying kindergartner, she'll say kindergartner, Um, and she'll change words and fix them so they go into the rhyme scheme, whereas uh, Sylvia just throws all that out the window. Her poems are very colorful, and the images are really shocking. So if, if she had been able to, um, if you could take these two poets and put them together somehow, there would be something really striking there. Mm-hmm. If you could take the deep emotion and the fervor and the bright images and put them together with a different, with, with love instead of anger or with, um, with understanding instead of hatred. If you could do that, then you would have something really striking. So, but like I said, I can't. I can very rarely read Sylvia. I, I even I brought her book home from the library because I wanted to study it just as, for, uh, in a literary way. And I just found I couldn't even have it in the house. I didn't want my kids looking at it. Okay. What else? Okay. Let me see if I have just missed any kind of little nugget that I wanted to pass on to you. so I think that that's it then so you're free it looks like we can catch a little bit of the other talk too so thank thank you